Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Movie Date is supported by the movie music stream at yourclassical.org. Soundtracks for every moment of the day and features that complement your listening experience. Movies at yourclassical.org. Kristen, this week we've got a little bit of everything, I would say. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's summer. We've got the massive, massive summer blockbuster, Jurassic World. We've got uh, the Teenage Weeper, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Little, you know I love to cry. Little indie from Fox Searchlight. And then we've got a documentary, a very buzzworthy documentary, The Wolf Pack, about a group of siblings that have been kept largely in captivity in their apartment in the Lower East Side for most of their lives. So I think this is one of these great weeks where there's probably something that's going to, in, that's going to interest just about everyone, wouldn't you say? We'll see if they interest us, though. Oh, ho. Oh, ho, ho, ho. yes. You're so hard to please. You're already digging your heels in, Kristen, aren't you? <laughs> well, before I reveal how I feel and before you reveal how you feel, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway. And I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And this is Movie Day. So, Kristen, let's start with Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. A little indie film, uh, hit at Sundance, got picked up by Fox Searchlight. Um, This is the story of a boy, a very, you know, uh, what would you call him? He's kind of uptight. He's a little bit shy, but he covers up for his shyness by being um, almost too social. He refuses. He's very polite and gets along well with people from every group, but never goes deep with any group and doesn't belong to any group. Exactly. He's got the goths on one hand. He's got the the socias on the other, the jocks here, the, you know, the math geeks there. Um, And so he's basically trying to skim his way through life. A neighbor girl who he barely knows um, gets uh, cancer and leukemia, and his mother uh, forces him to uh, go visit her and do a nice thing, something he absolutely does not want to do, but he decides that he'll go ahead and do it anyway. Here's a clip. Rachel's been diagnosed with leukemia. They just found out. Oh, God. Is that serious? They're doing all kinds of tests. They're doing everything they can. They just don't know. And that sucks. You're right. It sucks. It sucks really bad. It sucks quite a bit. The me in this story, it's me and Earl and the dying girl. The me is a boy named Greg, played by Thomas Mann. And then his parents in that scene right there are Connie Britton and Nick Offerman. And Earl, his best friend, is R.J. Seiler. And and the dying girl in the title is uh, Rachel, and she's played by Olivia Cooke. Um, so I, I think what made this movie kind of a, a hit or at least got everyone's attention is that uh, Greg and Earl, the two main characters, um, are, are, very, are very different. Greg is a, basically a white suburbanite kid, introvert, and Earl is uh, a black kid from kind of the other side of the tracks from a pretty rough home. Um, yeah, and, and Greg's family, his dad... Nick Offerman. Yeah. He's the sociology professor who doesn't really work. Yeah, who doesn't, doesn't He's really always work. in a bathrobe and he's always <laughs> eating exotic foods from other countries. Right, right. Um, sort of uh, one of these kind of uh, liberal intellectual hippie type uh, parent figures. Um, so the, so there's this oddball uh, friendship between Greg and Earl and also they bond, um, strangely enough, over um, 
like European art house films of the 60s, basically. Uh, 60s through 80s, I suppose you could say. Um, yeah, like Breathless or right. Clockwork Orange. <laughs> a lot or... of Werner Herzog, yes. a lot of David Lynch, um, right, uh, Ingmar Bergman, the whole, the whole bit. And they make their own kind of uh, versions of these films with uh, with stupid titles. So instead of Midnight Cowboy, you'd get 2.48 p.m. Cowboy. Or instead of uh, The Seventh Seal, you'd get The Seven Seals, plural. Um, so they do these kind of dumb things, and one of the things they're going to do is try to make a, make a film for Rachel, who's dying. Um, Kristen, I know that you are a big fan of The Fault in Our Stars, which is a very similar film. Just thinking about it just makes me a little bit emotional. And so how did this one, how did this one, did this one get a, get a hold on your, on your heartstrings? Well, as you know, I love Fault in Our Stars. I love quirky teenagers and I love the movies. Any movie that's like a Valentine to the movies, I'm just going to love it. It has all these components I just love. Uh, All the cast is really great to look at. Yeah. I, I have to say for... The supporting cast of all the parents, we also have Molly Shannon playing the dying girl's mom. Yes, who's so, very good so and kind of an lo- alcoholic <laughs> woman <laughs> coping with depressed. her daughter's death. Yes. Yeah. So we have a lot of great, you know, supporting characters also. Here's my problem with it, though. I couldn't quite figure out what the tone was supposed to be for the movie. There were times where I thought, this is supposed to be quirky, but it's not supposed to make me laugh. But I think it's supposed to be sad but this is the most horrible thing for me as a Kristen Meinzer. You're not making me cry. Uh, uh, yes. Oh, they, the movie didn't make you cry. I think it's trying very hard to make you it's cry. It's trying so hard, but why won't you make me cry? Interesting. You that didn't cry. That is a cry. bad date. Hmm. Learn how to play with everything right so I cry. Interesting. I, I, yeah. I just felt like you didn't really know the right buttons to push to make me cry. Now, I felt that this movie, uh, if it had a flaw... It was that it kind of went on quirk overload. It was so quirky. Every, All the headlines on the screen. Because right. every time you enter a new scene, there's actually a headline telling the you. The part where I meet the dying girl. The, the part where I mess up horribly. The part where, <laughs> right. The part where 46 days have passed in our friendship. The part where, right. you know. right. So quirky. The, the little movies they make are so quirky. Yes. The weird conversations they have with each other are so quirky. Yes. And I was trying to place myself in the movie universe somehow, and I'm like, am I supposed to feel like I did when I watched Juno? Am Ooh. I supposed to feel like I did when I was watching the sick kids with cancer and Fault in Our Stars? Was, right. How was I supposed to be feeling? And yeah, and the, well, and there are a lot of there are some some good things to be said for this movie, which is um, kind of the the existence of Earl, I think, is interesting just because he's a little different. He's a, you know, he's a black kid from the, from the wrong side of the tracks. And they don't, um, they don't kind of spiffy him up and, and tenderize him. He really is just kind of like a hardened kind of street kid. Um, and that's sort of interesting. But it also doesn't quite square with why he'd spend so much time with this introverted, nerdy kid who's really into obscure art house cinema. It's not that I can't believe that Earl uh, sort of enjoys this as well. It's just you don't get any other sense of Earl's life aside from what he does with Greg. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, Can I say that's a problem, though, not just with Earl, but also with Rachel? Yes, right. Both of them... Well, she has I, I, her I know, own I know. social circle, at, at least. I, I, I yes, mean, but I don't understand why either of them are really hanging out with Greg in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Because she has her own social circle. He doesn't necessarily bring a lot to the table. In the end, I kind of felt like it fell victim to 
um, manic pixie dream girl syndrome, which yes, we the Cameron Crowe syndrome. Yeah, which, right? which, which apparently the creator of that name, the 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 guy who came up with that moniker, wants it to die now. He doesn't want us to use the term <laughs> manic pixie dream girl. Manic pixie dream girl is that girl who just shows up and is magically doing something like being quirky, or she's dying but wears cute outfits, or right. and but what she helps is us to see the main white male character self-actualize. And I felt right. that in this movie, both Rachel and Earl... And Earl. And everyone, And really. everyone. Their only job was to have no depth, no agency, and just be there so Greg can learn how to be a better Greg. Yes, I, 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 I agree with you, and that, that is something that kind of um, that kind of got to me by the end. Um, there's, a, there's a certain kind of uh, twist or a denouement at the end that kind of really drives home the fact that this whole world the film has created is all for Greg, is, you know, and that, that kind of... Um, sapped a little of the it made it a little less convincing to me um so even though there were a lot of things i liked and i really actually loved that character of greg i thought that was a really interesting character the guy who's so afraid of friendship that he kind of skims his way through all the social circles never landing quite on one that's a character that's a main character i'd never quite seen in a teen film before i thought that was cool i like that too and he's actually Somebody who I think we all were or we all knew in right, high school, or, which right. is great. Sure. And so that was good. But I, 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 I would say that me and Earl and the Dying Girl was kind of an okay date. It didn't, it didn't, really, it didn't really get me, you know? No, I'm sorry, Rafer. I don't think it was an okay date. I you think me and worse. Earl and the Dying Girl was, was a bad date. No kidding. It was a bad date. It didn't emotionally deliver anything for me. And if I don't laugh or cry or do both... But with the dying girl, I really wanted to cry. Yeah, I wa- sure. I went in there just ready to sob. I had Kleenexes in my pocket. Interesting. N- nothing. Oh, you liked it worse than I did. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, Kristen, let's switch gears and go to the little the this week's little documentary. The Wolf Pack. Tell us about this. So this is on the list of your most anticipated films of the summer, Rafer. This Indeed. Is, this is a documentary by Crystal Moselle about the Angulo brothers. There are six brothers and a sister who we don't see much of who've been locked in their house for years, years and years and years. Essentially they live their in, entire lives. Yeah. They, they live in this tiny Lower East Side apartment in the projects in New York. And their dad has pretty much held them captive. They're homeschooled at home. They never leave the house. They look out the windows. And the only way they really have a world at all is through the movies. They watch the movies incessantly, reenact them meticulously. They make costumes. They have every line of every great movie memorized. And by great movies, I mean a lot of them are just action movies by Tarantino. Sure, of course. But these boys are able to live freely in their imaginations and through these movies. Here's a clip. This outfit is made out of cereal boxes and yoga mats. That's a yoga mat, and the hard part you see is uh, cardboard from cereal boxes. When we do it, I have to get in the mind of the character. I have to be as strong as I can be to play Batman, because it's a responsibility, sort of. That sounds pathetic to some people, because... But... To us and to our world, it is very uh, personal. So while that's really wonderful that they can recreate these, you know, scenes from the movies, these full films, and obviously they have a lot of ingenuity based on what we just heard there about how they're making costumes, it, it, it's just tragic. How did these kids end up locked in this house for years and years and years at a time? And sure. seeing this family's drama unfold and then also seeing what happens when one of them tries to escape... 
Yes. It, it is very fascinating. Yeah. If I'm doing the math right, I think the oldest of them is maybe 20 or getting close to 20. Yeah. Well, nowadays, um, I mean, the One oldest of, were in their 20s. Yeah. Because the middle kids, the twins, are now 22. Is that right? Yep. Okay, yeah. I, I was trying to put two and two together while I was watching this. Um, it's a, it's one thing I would say about the film. It's a little hard to keep track of who is who. Um, the brothers are really fascinating guys. They're, um, they all look in their in their own way, sort of, if this makes sense. They all look very, very, very much alike. So and, much alike, And yeah. in some ways it's kind of hard, it's kind of hard to keep them straight. Um, but you also do see their personalities come through as the, as the documentary progresses. Um, so I was really fascinated by this, and I, I really wanted to see particularly something of the parents, because that's the big question mark in this film, is who the hell are these people? And you do see quite a bit of the mother, and it's really not until the end that you actually get a really good look and a good sit-down with the father. Um, and I won't spoil anything, but I, I do feel like there's something really kind of enigmatic about this film and enigmatic about their situation that's hard to get a handle on. It's very difficult to understand how this happened and why, because partly everyone seems keenly aware of how totally bizarre their lives are. And that just not just the brothers, but the dad and the mom all seem to understand that they've just done something completely freaky and bizarre and, and unacceptable. And yet they have done this thing. And then it's almost as if there's this been this weird cloud of doom that or fear that descended on this family and then at the end you do see it kind of start to lift and but the reasons for it lifting are almost as inexplicable as the reasons for it descending and in some ways that kind of fascinated me do you know yeah i know exactly what you're talking about because you kind of want something more concrete to be happening so the story happens in a way that we understand yeah. digestibly. But You're waiting for the smoking gun, the big psychological Hitchcockian reveal that explains it all, yeah. but it doesn't come. But in a way, this is just a movie about crazy people. These parents are in some ways just, they're not going to act in manners that we want them to act. And I think that early on, we see the dad actually admitting that he just loves being a control freak. He has yes. a secret power of controlling yes. people's minds. And he actually thinks he has that. Yes. And we see the mother just completely beaten down by the situation who yes. has some sort of just fear of doing anything else other than just living in this house with her kids and and yet aside from the the mother they do they do talk about some physical abuse against the mother uh but the kids are never abused and that's kind of odd and kind of interesting are we sure about that though do you think they were oh i think they were i think, think everybody was horribly horribly abused in this movie i think everybody was i mean not just being locked in the house. He was very controlling. He was violent. He was a drunk. He'd lock himself in the room. He, he you just know, seems he, like yes, he... Yes, but I mean, there's no... Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll just say this. There's, there's, no, there's no explicit ad admission or, or evidence given in the film that um, the boys were ever uh, really abused or beaten or hurt. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Crystal Moselle, the director, actually says that the family was fully cooperative with this film. Yes. Which is... Which is also so interesting completely and bizarre. So bizarre. And also Crystal Moselle seems very intent on not putting an opinion out there about how she feels about all of this. I'm sure. I'm sure that I'm sure she 
by now. I mean, in the film, if I were the director of this film, I'm sorry, but I think some of my judgment would leak in more. (laughs) I'd be like, well, you'd you'd be. I mean, it's it's in many ways hard to imagine why she didn't call Child Protective Services, right? Because one, at least one of those children, uh, while the filming is going on, is very young. He looks like he's probably ten or something, right? Um, Anyway, I I thought it was. I thought it was really interesting. I thought the wolf pack was very interesting. Um, a, a tiny, tiny bit slow. Um, yeah. it, there's a little, there's a little less going on on screen sometimes than you might wish. But it's a fascinating story and just a total, a total mystery. It's almost like one of these gray garden situations where you can't quite wrap your head around how this came to be. Um, and in that way, I thought it was a very good date. I'd really recommend it to people. Oh, I absolutely thought the Wolfpack was a good date. And it anytime you talk with anyone about it, it's just like, really? Who directed that movie? What right. kind of fiction is that? And it's like, it's not fiction. It's not fiction. And no, this is not like, you know, by Scorsese. This is actually a real yeah. family's life. So I would highly recommend it. Wolfpack, great date. So now, Kristen... We reach the pinnacle, the zenith of the podcast (laughs) and the week with the big release, Jurassic World. Uh, This is not Steven Spielberg directing. It's a guy named Colin Trevorrow. uh, And uh, this is the fourth in the Jurassic Park franchise. We're back in Jurassic Park, bigger and better than ever. It's now called Jurassic World. Um, You know, now we all know what's happened in the past to this theme park. We're all a little surprised that it's still going. Why are going. they making this happen again? Why are they doing this After again? After that last you know, three disasters. Think of what their insurance liability <laughs> bill must be every year. It must be astronomical. And yet somehow they've found the funding to stay in business. And people, those darn Americans, keep showing up to this park. Um, and this time we have Chris Pratt as a uh, velociraptor trainer. Bryce Dallas Howard as Claire. She's a Jurassic Park executive. A couple of kids, of course, because what would the movie be without a couple of kids to uh, to be imperiled? Uh, that's uh, Gray, a little dinosaur enthusiast, and his older teenage brother, uh, Zach. And they're all going to come together and probably get terrorized here in Jurassic World. Here's a clip. Look, I get it. You're in charge out here. you got to make a lot of tough decisions. It's probably easier to pretend these animals are just numbers on a spreadsheet. But they're not. They're alive. I'm fully aware they're alive. You might have made them in a test tube. But they don't know that. They're thinking, I gotta eat. I gotta hunt. I gotta. You can relate to at least one of those things, right? Now that's Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt showing their complete lack of chemistry, which I am going to point out right now does not exist. Their chemistry is non existent. I think we're supposed to cheer for their romance in some sort of way or another. But, you know, that's obviously secondary to dinosaurs in any of these movies. But I would have liked for there to be a little bit of chemistry between them. Just a little bit would have been nice. Well, she they're supposed to play a a pair who have gone on a date in the past, but it didn't go well. And now uh, circumstances have forced them back together. Chris, uh, Chris Pratt's character is Owen. He's one of these Tough macho guys, as you can imagine, since he trains velociraptors for a living. He's ex-Navy. Uh, when he's not doing that, he's uh, usually fixing up his old vintage Triumph motorcycle. And uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is one of these chilly, uh, you know, doesn't want kids. Hyper-organized. Focused on her career. Right. Uh, a little bit heartless. Um, 
you know, doesn't really see the animals as, as living things, you know, just sees them as uh, numbers on a spreadsheet. And so they're going to kind of come together and uh, change each other or he'll change her or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, and I have to say it, that really doesn't work. Um, I would also say that uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's character I found uh, almost a little unforgivably heartless. Yeah, and um, my, my big takeaway walking out of the movie was, you know what the problem with this world is? Women who have jobs. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh! That's interesting. She loves her career, and look at how horrible she is with kids because of that. Exactly. And those nephews have to be taken care of by, you know, her assistant, who's another female. Who, let's face it, women with jobs—they're horrible she's not with that kids. Good at it. She's, she's not, not that good right. at it. And it, frankly, their own mom isn't that good at it. Their mom is always like when she's calling. Oh, and her to mom has a job too. That's meetings. right. Judy Greer plays yes. the mom, and she's a, but she's a very weepy, uh, very classic weepy Spielbergian mom. useless mom. mom. But yeah, but, but you know, but, it but comes you're right. Down to women with jobs, that's they're the a, worst. Interesting. Point, Don't let it? women work, Rafer. You know what happens point. when you let women work? The dinosaurs get loose. <laughs> Don't let women work. You wind up with uh, 19 kids, one of whom's a molester. Yeah, oh, that's, that's what happens. When... No, that's, I oh, thought we I'm were going to have that that's conversation what... on another day. That's what happens when you don't let the women work. Oh, that's a <laughs> low blow on oh. my part. Why did I even bring that up? Oh. Okay. Um, I know what you're saying, Kristen. Um, yeah, so not that much chemistry there with uh, Chris Pratt and um, Bryce Dallas Howard, which is too bad because Chris Pratt, I think, is very charming and funny, but he's oh, not yeah. allowed to be charming and funny. He's told to be very serious and muscular. and, and He cares get, about the animals. Right, and right. This is about justice for nature. and Very little know. wisecracking uh, in this one. So that's odd. But um, here's what I would say. Uh, you know, this movie is just an absolute, even more so than the sequels, this is just a beat-for-beat beat remake of Jurassic Park. It is scene no, no, no. for scene. It is. It is absolutely no, scene not. for scene. No, because if is. it was scene for scene, it would be better. No, I'm just saying it's scene for scene. Literally scene for scene. It's there there's there's the Ford Explorer scene is redone here. There's the dying uh, the dying dinosaur that we have to kind of fawn over. There's the breathtaking moment when you see all the dinosaurs out in the wild and you get to run with them. There's the big final climactic battle in the sort of atrium thing at the end. I mean, it is there it, it covers it covers ground like almost down to the minute of well, the original film. Well, then why is the buildup so slow and deliberate? Why are there not those magic moments like I want the Dixie cup with the jiggling water in it? Oh, I yeah. want I want <laughs> yes, magic moments point. like that. I want to be trapped <laughs> right. in a kitchen hiding behind metal doors. I want there to be these moments of of, of magic and strangeness that I'm just not feeling this movie delivers. No, it, this movie this movie does not have that kind of magic. I think for I think for one reason we've seen three films exactly like they it. They used so up all far. the magic. They no, used they up all didn't. the magic. There's more magic to be had out there. I don't actually think there is that more ma- <laughs> much more magic to be had out there. The, look, the, the original Jurassic Park, uh, written by Michael Crichton, by the way, just it's the premise is just pure gold. It's pure. Pure gold. We've brought dinosaurs back to life. We've put them in a theme park. Oh no, they got out. That premise is just brilliant. It has just got hit all over it. And Spielberg, I think, brought that great Spielbergian touch to it and made it into something just totally special. Um, you know, there's not much more really to be done with that premise. There's not much more. There's not. There's nowhere else to go except to just repeat the premise with different doctors, different kids, different scientists, different businessmen, different evil lab guys. That's all there's going to be. And so here's what you've got. Jurassic Park 4, Jurassic World. I think it's done perfectly well. 
Is it a home run? Does it knock it out of the park? Am I going to tell everyone, oh, my God, you've got to see Jurassic World? No. But if you're a fan of the movies and you like it or if you're just looking for, like, a breezy, fun time at the movies, I think Jurassic World's perfectly good. I think, I think it totally holds its own. So no? you're saying it's a good date? I think it's a fine date. I think it's a totally. <laughs> I think it's a fine summer blockbuster, you know, middle of June, enjoyable, breezy popcorn movie date. Well, you're saying a middle of June movie. I'm saying a middle of the road movie and a middle of the road date Ooh, for Jurassic World. You really, you really, you really, you were not impressed by Jurassic no, World. No, not enough magic. Romance horrible. And and it just takes way too long to set up. Mm, it does get does have a slow it does have a slow start. You're yeah, right. Yeah, and that's not even getting into the like I said, women having jobs. But that's beside the point. <laughs> well, stay with us because when we come back, we're going to be having a little sweatpants session with two ladies named Grace and Frankie. That plus trivia in a moment. Movie Date is supported by the Movie Music Stream at YourClassical.org, a new site for expertly curated streams, unique programs, and relevant features to promote calm and focus. Click, listen, and relive your favorite moments on the silver screen. Find a steady stream for your epic scenes with movies at YourClassical.org. Today's Movie Date podcast is supported by Audible. Audible Audible.com is the place for audiobooks and spoken word audio titles. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from in every category possible, including books that have inspired the biggest big screen hits, like Gone Girl, Divergent, The Silver Linings Playbook, and one of my all-time favorites, The Fault in Our Stars. And if you don't like your selection, no problem. With Audible.com's Great Listen Guarantee, you can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another, anytime, no questions asked. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash moviedate for a free 30-day trial and free audiobook. That's audiblepodcast.com slash M-O-V-I-E-D-A-T-E. I'm Rafer Guzman. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And this is Movie Date. And Rafer, it's time for those pants that give us a little bit of give. You're wearing sweatpants. It's Monday. Am I the Queen of England? I don't know, does the Queen of England only wear sweatpants? But you are a man. Sometimes you wear stretchy pants in your room. All right. Let's tie them up in a bow, Kristen. Oh, love it. My hand is right there on my gut right now. (laughs) And I got some Chinese takeaway sitting right beside me. I'm ready to watch some Netflix action. This week we're going to talk about Grace and Frankie. This is the new Netflix series that just launched a few weeks ago starring Lily Tomlin as Frankie. And as Grace, we have Jane Fonda. So tell us a little bit about this show, Rafer. Well, Grace and Frankie are two uh, fairly wealthy wives. Uh, Jane Fonda's character is a makeup maven. She's got her own line of makeup. She walks through a store and people say, oh, excuse me, is that you? Pointing to the little box with her face on it. Um, Frankie is a more eccentric character. She's one of these uh, basically rich New Age hippie types, uh, you know, and an artist, and an artist. You know, she's going to go through uh, She'll paint like Buddhas and stuff. Yeah, she's going to have ceremonies and uh, things like that, incense, the the, the usual uh, cliches. Um, Grace and Frankie, as you might guess, don't really like each other. The the, the hippie and the businesswoman don't really get along. Um, however. They come together for a dinner reluctantly with their two husbands who have uh – They've Something, been partners in the same law firm for over yes. over 20 years. Yes, and uh, the husbands have something to tell them. Uh, here's a clip. We want to talk to you about something. 
Saul and I are in love. Excuse me? You're gay. We want to get married. Oh, married! Because we can do that now. I know. I hosted that fundraiser. Ah, yes. Don't you hate that? Oh, boy. It's always a bummer. Yeah, so you and your husband, you thought things were good, but no, your husband's been cheating on you for years. Right. Years and years and years. The cheating plus the gayness, and they, they actually talk about both of those things together and separately because they're yes. two different issues yes. in the show, which I do have to say I was quite impressed with it. They didn't just conflate everything into one thing because it's two different issues. Yes. No, yeah, I, I, I agree. And there and there is something about the way that, that uh, Grace and Frankie both react to the news that makes you kind of realize that they're trying to suss out those they're trying they're trying to suss out those two separate issues and not and not make them into one big bi- giant ball of, you know, <laughs> of a problem. Um and it's Sam Waterston who plays Frankie's husband, opposite, by the way, Martin Sheen, who plays uh, Jane Fonda's husband. But Sam Waterston says to to Lily Tomlin, you know, well, well, what was I supposed to do? You know, he had this horrible secret and, you know, he was he was faking his whole identity. And, and what was I supposed to do? And, and Lily Tomlin says, write it out. Be miserable <laughs> for another 20 years, which I thought was a great line. Um, so there's there's some there's some good moments like that I thought in this uh, in this series. What did you think, Kristen? Well, I really loved the premise of it. Late in life, coming out of the closet, and anything involving Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. As you know, I'm a nine to five super fan. Agreed. And, Agreed. and I am keeping my fingers crossed that Dolly Parton's going to show up a few times on this series <laughs> because I would love to see all three of them back together at some point. Sure. So I love that, and I love it when TV shows choose to focus on people over 70, which we almost never get to see people yep. over 70 having rich, full lives. After the Golden Girls went off the air, I feel like yep. we've almost never seen it. And we get to see the, you know, flexing their comic chops, in some cases, in cliched ways, as you were saying, like yes. the hippiness or the rich former model executive in the makeup world. And, right. You know, so sometimes it's cliche, but everybody, I think, is so likable in this, and everybody's reactions are so human, but totally different from each other. Like, yes. The way that Martin Sheen is so happy to be with his lover at last out in the open versus Sam Watterson, who feels genuine remorse at hurting his wife so badly. Yes, and you right. see a wide range of reactions. It's not like everyone's just on the same page. And I thought that was really well executed. And I've really been enjoying this series. I'm several episodes in now, and I'm going to keep on watching. I I think Lily Tomlin is really the, the jewel in the crown in this, uh, in this series. I just feel like she, um, whenever she's on screen and she throws out a line, I feel like you can pretty much always tell that's a Lily Tomlin line. I feel like that always pretty much came right off the top of her head. And I don't feel like the other actors are able to quite do what she's doing. I think she's the real star of this show. Well, she is the one who has the most comedic chops in all of she this, She is. Too. She is, for sure. Um, and she's great. Uh, whether or not I'm going to keep watching the show, I'm going to say probably not. Much, much, as I, much as I enjoyed the kickoff and I, I liked the premise... I can't really see where it's going to go from here. I can't see how much how much more complicated, interesting um, it's going to get. I, I feel like it's only a matter of time before the wacky neighbor is invented to show up uh, ne- next door <laughs> and, <laughs> and a baby. <laughs> and the you know what I'm saying? I feel I feel like those those twists of fate are ahead, um, and I don't feel like the I don't feel like the series has enough kind of. Um, like topical social relevance to make me keep watching, to make me keep 
thinking, oh, what are they going to say next? It mm. just seems like kind of an okay sitcom with some fantastic freaking actors. But aside from that, it kind of seems like another sitcom to me, and I'm going to say it was it was okay. I, I thought I thought Grace and Frankie was okay. Well, I'm going to keep watching it. I think it's pretty good. I love these actors, love the cast. Yes. And I think that with characters like these, I just want to see where they're going to go. I don't really need them to stay on topic necessarily. Who knows? Down the road, it might just be a show about two mismatched best friends. Sure. You know, who knows what it could be. But I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. So, You're in. So, yes, Grace and Frankie, I'm in. All right, Rafer, before we say goodbye to our listeners, it's time for trivia. What did we ask last week, Rafer? Well, last week we were talking about the Brian Wilson biopic, Love and Mercy, which did something kind of unusual. It cast two actors in one role. We had uh, Paul Dano and John Cusack both playing uh, Brian Wilson in his younger and older years. Uh, So Kristen and I went back to the vaults and found another movie where multiple actors played a character, a musician, we played you this clip. Yes. Thank you. Why do you think you were booed at your recent appearance in New England? Well, um, I've... <laughs> I figured there's a little boo in all of us. Is it true you no longer sing protest songs? Who said that? <laughs> I didn't say that. I just... Uh, I read somewhere that you no longer do the protest thing. Well, that's all I ever do is uh, protest. Do you have a message? Do you? We got a ton of right answers for that, which, Rafer, I was really surprised by. When you came up with this question, I thought, this is too hard. Yeah, you didn't think anyone was going to get it, but I I knew that people had seen this film. A ton of people did. Here's one of the answers we randomly selected from the hat. Hi, this is Jeff calling from Woodby Island in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm responding to your trivia this week. I'm going to guess that the clip was from Todd Haynes. I'm not there, and I'm not even sure that's the right title, but love your reviews, love the fact that you guys don't always follow the herd, forget Rotten Tomatoes, you guys are your own special heirloom tomatoes that we would never miss. Thanks a lot. Oh, Jeff. Such, We're such... heirloom tomatoes. That's the sweetest compliment. <laughs> that's that's very nice, Jeff. Very nice. That's Thank so you. Sweet. Yes, and yeah, you are correct. The answer is, I'm not there. That's so, right. So you, so you did not mess up the title. I'm not there by Todd Haynes. <laughs> Let's just. Uh, by, and by the way, we should tell everyone who who played uh, uh, Bob Dylan, essentially a Bob Dylan figure in "I'm Not There." It was Kate Blanchett? Yes. Christian Bale. Heath Ledger. That's right. Heath Ledger. I forgot about Heath Ledger. Just a whole group of people. I think about seven or eight different people played the Bob Dylan um, figure. Kate Blanchett, of, of course, was the best. So this week we've got one more stumper. Uh, Kristen, tell us what it is. So in honor of movies where the characters really find refuge by making movies, by shooting their own films that are copying other movies and so on, which we saw in both The Wolfpack and in Me and Earl and The Dying Girl this week. But there have been other movies that have done this before. We're going to play a clip of one other movie that's like a valentine to the movies with characters that shoot their own movies. Here's that clip. I've rewound this tape all over and it's blank. Really? This video don't work. Yours looks like this. Look, 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 all the tapes are blank. It's the TV, Mike. Show me how... Why is it doing that? Does that happen when you do it? Uh-oh. What is wrong with you? Why is it doing that when you do that? You're magnetized. You erased these tapes. It's you. If you know the answer, if you know what movie that is, 
You can message us at facebook.com slash movie date podcast. Or you can give us a call at 5717 movies. 